Bibles to Psalm 61. Psalm number 61. And this evening, brief, briefly, I want to teach from verse 2. And the title is simply, Lead Me to the Rock. Lead Me to the Rock. Psalm 61, verse number 1 again. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Do you realize God hears every prayer that you pray? There's no place on this earth you can go and you cry out to God and God doesn't hear you. Even though many times we feel like God's not listening. And there are many people in this world who who come to that conclusion and they say, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I've done everything people have told me to do. And I've called on the name of the Lord. I've used the name of Jesus. I fasted with my praying. I've even given offerings with my praying. But despite all of that, it seems as though God doesn't hear it. Now, there are times in Scripture when the people that are writing these songs that they sing, that kind of sentiment comes through in the wordings of the different verses. But David here, in preparing this song for his musician, I love the way he starts off that first stanza by saying, Hear my cry, O God, and attend to my prayer. That is to say, Lord, listen to the content of my plea and honor what I'm asking for. I don't think anybody prays unless they honestly want God to answer their prayer. And what's the point of praying if you don't want the thing that you're asking for? Now, it may be true that we can ask for things amiss, as it says in the New Testament. Uh, we ask and we receive not. We have because we ask not. And then it says sometimes we ask amiss. That is to say we ask in the wrong way. We ask with the wrong motive. We ask with the wrong in intent or intention. But David here, being a psalmist and a musician, was someone who understood what it meant to walk close to God. And I love what he says here in verse number two. He says, from the end of the earth, I'll cry. Now, I have no idea how far David traveled in his life. But I can tell you, I've been to the end of the earth in a lot of places. And I prayed a lot of prayers in different countries of this world and asked God for a lot of help. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a geographical place. You may feel like you've been to the end of the earth in some of your circumstances. Because it's quite possible that in certain events and occurrences in your life that you have had to go further than other people have had to go in similar circumstances. And of course, if you go through a lot of trials and tests and temptations, Enough of them will lead you to pray. I've, I've heard people say, you know, I don't even bother praying for myself. I spend all of my time praying for other people, and that's noble. But don't misunderstand me. There'll come a point in your life where you need to pray for yourself, too. There's always something that happens. There are always things that are taking place that, that require you 
to not only focus on the blessings you want showered down on other people, but sometimes in the middle of your life, you have to do like David and pray a very simple prayer. And you can put it all in one word. You can encapsulate it in one syllable. I think the most anointed word you can use when you're praying is just simply help. God sees your heart. He's not interested in whether or not you pray in the King James or New King James or modern English version or NIV style. What God is interested in is looking at you in your circumstances. And if it looks like you're being swallowed up by the sea and you're on your way down, then just like Peter, you cry out, Lord, save me. And then there's a hand that comes down. And that's what that's where your expectation should be. This is why. David is able to say, I will cry unto God. He didn't say he would cry unto a Hittite God, nor did he say he would cry out to some Canaanite deity. But he said, when my heart is overwhelmed, that is to say, when my heart is flooded with emotions I can't control. Now, I know we don't like that, uh, that, that, that phrase there. How, how can we have emotions that we cannot control? Because we should take our emotions and make them subject to our inward man, and we should put them you know, in a, in a state of obeisance or something like that. But folks, I'm going to be honest with you. There are things that people can say, things that people can do, certain things that can happen where suddenly your heart is flooded with a certain emotion before you even have thought about it. You say, give me an example. Well, Tiffany and I have been driving before. I remember years ago we were driving... I think going down to Dr. Sutton for a board meeting, and we had decided to leave, I think, after the evening service. And we got on the highway and started driving, and it was, it was icy, and it was cold, and it was, as it was raining, then that means the, the water was hitting the windshield and freezing, and so the windshield wiper is moving the water out of the way, and every few minutes, it's turning to ice as it's moving it out of the way. Okay. Now, we understood once we got further, far enough south that everything was going to start to melt. But between from here, trying to get down at Oklahoma, oh, it was difficult. And there were times we were driving, and, and as you're going along, you hit a patch of ice, and you know how it is. You can feel your wheels turning up under you when you're driving down the highway. You know how fast you're going. But you hit a patch of ice and then all of a sudden you just feel like you're on a roller coaster going over a hill about to go down because it just seems like you're floating. And in moments like that, we don't cuss. We holler out Jesus. Yeah, we holler out Jesus. I've seen people that have been on the highway and as they were driving, they hit a patch of ice. The car does a 180, sometimes even a 360. Don't tell me people don't get nervous when that happens go into that doctor's office and the doctor looks at you and the doctor says the report is not so good. What suddenly overwhelms the heart? Now we know we need Christians and we need the word to put us back on track and to be where we need to, to be in our relationship with him. But David is on to something when he says when my heart is overwhelmed. I mean, Sometimes, you know, people get hit with so much at once Sometimes they just want to sit down or just find a bed and crawl up in a fetal position and just keep the blinds closed and not even answer the door. And they just want to lay there and try to find a moment's peace. David said, it's during times like that I cry out to God. 
overwhelmed. And then this is why he says, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. The rock, as it was used in the Old Testament for fortresses and places of refuge, the reason they were so significant is because if you were a people being attacked, you wanted the higher ground whole lot easier to fight downward than it is to fight your way upward. And if the people are trying to lay siege to a particular group of people, it's very hard to attack a rock that is seemingly impregnable. That is to say, you can't scale it, and they've got a wall going around it, so how in the world do I get in it? Well, for David, when he says a rock that's higher than me, he's talking about a place of safety. That's what he's speaking of. He's talking about a place where he, he feels secure and where he has no worries at all. Well, God provides that for us in Christ. Jesus ascended from earth, having been raised from the dead. He went to the right hand of the Father. Ephesians says each one of us are seated in heavenly places. But the scripture says the Lord is our rock now. So as a Christian who's seated in heavenly places... There is no place now that God can lead you that is higher than the throne of God. But even the throne of God is higher than you and higher than me. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It's a place of safety. It's a place of holiness. It's a place of a great witness. Now, How many times have we had spiritual battles that we have won? Hopefully most of them. But if you've ever driven down some of these country roads and taken the Oregon Trail and followed the different signs, then you know if, if you follow the signs and then sometimes get out of the vehicle and walk a tenth of a mile, sometimes a quarter of a mile into some of these fields, then you'll run into these signs. And these signs or plaques will usually have some information that says such and such battle was fought here or such and such family came here in 1885 and they homesteaded here. They were slaughtered by these kind of Indians or whatever. It, it'll say on there. But the point is, it's a marker that designates a place. A thing that you'll notice by observation is that most places where people lived, they tried to stay at higher ground. They tried to stay at higher ground. Even when they were living near the rivers, they wanted to be on high ground, because that's the place of victory. Now let's go to Exodus chapter 33. Moses is talking to the Lord. David has told us about a rock that's higher than us, but in, in Exodus chapter 33, God is dealing with Moses about leading the children of Israel. Now I want to begin with verse 12. Moses said unto the Lord, Exodus 33, 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, <clears throat> and you've not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet you have said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. <clears throat> now therefore I pray thee, if I found grace in your sight, show me now thy way that I may know you. Notice what he wants. He wants to know the path, and he wants to know God that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence 
shall go with you, and I will give thee rest. Now, that is what each of us wants in our Christian walk. We want the presence of God. I'll be honest with you, without, without the presence of God, whether it's a church service, whether it's a Bible reading, it's not of a whole lot of value. If wherever two and three are gathered, Jesus is there in the midst, then the presence of God is important. The scripture says it's in his presence that we have fullness of joy. You know why Christians are unhappy when they go to church? There's no presence of God. And if there's no presence of God, there's no reason to be happy because you have no sensation of God actually being there in the midst of people. But, but being in a worship service, it should not be like you're standing at a graveside and everybody's sorry, sorrowful, and sad. But if we understand that God goes with us wherever we go, it changes everything. When you get in your vehicle and you drive here or you get in your vehicle and drive to work or drive to visit family or go on to vacation, in that car with you should be the presence of God. It can happen in school. I was reading this morning about some Swedish children who <clears throat> were seventh graders, and these young people... Had, had gone to school and then they had this period of time over there overseas where they went outside, even seventh graders. It wasn't just switching classes like, like we do, and this was maybe 40, 45 years ago. And they said a, a class of seven, seventh graders looked up in the sky and, and they had no idea how this happened. They all simultaneously saw the words, Be ye converted. Jesus is coming soon. And they said they immediately saw an angel in white, that said, amen, after the words have been read. Imagine that a whole class of seventh graders. You can't get a whole class to lie about something like that. You, you cannot tell those school children that the presence of God isn't real, and it changed them. You see? It changed them. God didn't do it for a preacher. He didn't do it for the parents. He did it for children. The scripture here says, my presence shall go with you and I will give thee rest. I really believe that in the presence of God, that's where we find peace and ease and comfort and rest and contentment in the presence of God. How can I create the presence of God in my life? Put on some gospel music in that house. Yeah. Play some music that glorifies the king. If, if you want the presence of God in your car... Play some music in there that glorifies him. Get, get somebody reading the word, preaching the word, teaching the word. Allow God to create his presence around you and in you, and then you'll find that that presence will provide peace for you. When everything else is falling apart and everybody else's world is falling apart and it seems like their hearts are overwhelmed, here you have peace, but even in those moments where your heart is overwhelmed, you can get right back on track by having the presence of God right there with you. That's what David knew, and that's why this man wrote all of this music. I really do believe anybody on the run from Saul for all of those years, you know he wants the presence of God just to calm his spirit. You ever notice how different people act when gospel music or Christian music is being played or worship music is being played in comparison with how people act? when there's rock and roll or R&B or secular country. Just pay attention to people. You walk into stores in the mall, observe the people as they're walking back and forth. You look at people, the videos 
from uh, concerts and rock and roll concerts and look at the things that they're doing. Very often, the, little by little, the clothes are coming off. Bad behavior. When, when I was in, in high school and some of those, those kids lived on the west side of Cleveland, they were all into <coughs> Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, you probably remember those days. He'd be on that stage and he'd bite the head of a bat off or something like that. Just, it was just terrible, the things that, that, that this guy did. And some of these other groups, Black Sabbath, used to travel with their own witch that was assigned to them. But then you look at what happens where, where Jesus is magnified and it produces peace. Worship services. I've been inside a casino before because I've had to stay in a hotel in Las Vegas where they had one. And I'm going to tell you right now, I, I have a totally different feeling in here this evening worshiping God than I had walking through that casino to get to the back area to get to the the uh, elevators to get up to my room when I was in Vegas many, many years ago. Totally different feeling. There's something about gospel music that creates a presence that not only edifies, but it oftentimes convicts. Tiffany, during the holiday season when she was younger, and, and she, she, she's got family members that, that are somewhat like mine, so, you know, holiday, that's an opportunity to drink. Everybody's always looking for an opportunity to drink. So Memorial Day, family reunion. Don't forget to go to the liquor store. Fourth of July, barbecue. Don't forget the beer. So it's coming up Christmas time, and Tiffany, she, she, she's with her family. And, of course, they like to put on all of that music, the blues. You know, of course, the blues, I, I've always said that, that, that the blues is the black man's country music. And, and country is, is white folks blues because in that music everybody's leaving somebody you're losing your dog you lost your house your spouse has left you and all of that so Tiffany would wait till, till all of them got there and they would be going through all of that and Tiffany would then put on amazing grace now you've never seen anything you see a bunch of sinners try to get drunk with gospel music going and then after a while, they just said, can, can you put on something else? I can't drink with this music going on in the background. It's because there's something in that music that creates a presence, a disturbing presence. Here's what the man said. It's what the Lord said to the man. My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. That's what we need in a world like today. I'll give you rest. So he said, if your presence doesn't go with me, don't carry us up out of here. That is to say, Lord, I don't want to lead Israel through this wilderness and out of difficult circumstances if we don't have you. What's the point of it, God? To have the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, but not have the presence of God, what would it matter? Yeah, what would it matter? What, what, good, what good would the Bible be if you didn't have his words in it? It'd just be a book with blank pages and covers. And what good is a body if it's not a temple of the Holy Spirit? Think of that. God wants to live in you. He wants to dwell in you. Moses said, God, I don't want to go up unless you're leading me, unless I can sense and know that your presence is here. Everybody feels better when they have somebody else with them. They're doing something. 
most people who are loners still find certain events where they want a friend to help them. If you're going for a long walk, sometimes it's good to have somebody with you. If you're passing through a trial, you want another shoulder to lean on. Even if we take the time to do some kind of outdoor recreation, it, it is a lot funner if you have somebody else with you. But Moses said, For wherein shall it be known here that I and your people have found grace in your sight? That is to say, how will it be known? Is it not in that you go with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth? He's saying your presence is what distinguishes us from every nation on this planet. Can you imagine that if the rapture took place right now and the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ disappeared from this earth, I could promise you that in midweek services all across this planet and next Sunday morning there would be church services all over this earth and they would never have even missed God. They would never even know that God's not there. Because they never had his presence in any of the services because their hearts very often weren't pure to love God in, in a righteous way anyhow. So according to Moses, the main thing that matters is the presence. Where am I going to find his presence? <coughs> He's going to tell us here. The Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight. I know you by name. And he said, Lord, I'm asking you, show me your glory. That's a prayer. That's a plea. That's a petition. Show me your glory, God. I don't even know how to really define glory, to be honest with you. I've heard a lot of people preach on the glory. I've heard a lot of stories and definitions of it. I, I know that sometimes it can be seen, it's visible, it's tangible. I've heard people tell stories about the presence of God like a glory cloud uh, permeating a place. Even in Kings and Chronicles, it talks about the glory cloud coming down upon the temple. And it talks about the priest not being able to stand. I understand that. But when, when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory, what does this man want to see? It has to be something unique. It has to be something Something distinct. You know that in John, the scripture says, we beheld his glory. Talking about Jesus. The glory of the Son. The glory of the coming one. But now he says in verse 19, <clears throat> I will make all my goodness. And now we have a definition, a distinct definition of what God considers the glory for Moses during this moment. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face. That must be part of it. Nobody can see me and live. All of my goodness, now that must have been a sight. Verse 21, And the Lord said, Unto him, behold, there is a place by me, near me, beside me, and thou shalt stand upon what? A rock. Notice that. A rock. So God says to Moses, here is a high place. You stand here and you get a glimpse of me. But if you are out of position, you'll never see me. And you'll never know what you want to know. 
David says, Lord, lead me to a rock that's higher than I. I'm telling you, there is a place in God where man has to be in order for God to really deal with him and to bring revelation to him and to bring visions to him. And if he's not where he's supposed to be, he'll never, ever see it. I'm convinced that after this event in Moses' life, he was forever transformed because he saw the goodness of God like he'd never seen it. So there's some aspects of God that when we learn of them, it changes us. Yeah. It transforms us, and we can never be the same. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before. I have no idea how long this took. If it was quickly, if it was a prolonged thing. But verse 22, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. So there was some kind of a crack or crevice or hole in the rock. Moses had to be placed in there. God puts his hand over him, and he passes by, and that thing changes Moses forever, just to get a glimpse of this. It wasn't a healing. It wasn't a miracle of nature. It was a miracle of the glory of God, and the king passed by. Wouldn't you like to be in a place like that? To hear, to see. And he says, when I take my hand away, thou shalt see my back parts. But my face shall not be seen. This man got a glimpse of God in a way that nobody else ever saw him. Abraham's called a friend of God. Didn't see him like this. Isaiah got a glimpse of the throne, the glory of the Lord, the train of the Lord filled the temple. Isaiah 6 says he didn't see it like this. I think it's, it's worth exploring just the, 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 the varied ways in scriptures that people got a glimpse of the glory of God standing on the rock. Now we return then to Psalm 62 excuse me, 61, verse number two, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God knew where the rock was for Moses. Moses had no idea he would see God that day and that his prayer would be answered in that way. So when you also pray to God in moments where you want God to do something for you, you should expect that since you're in those higher places, he's going to reveal himself to you. God doesn't want the Christian life to be boring. He's never believed that Christianity was for mediocre people. It's a supernatural life with supernatural presence. And wherever that presence is, that's where the reality of God's grace is manifested. David says in verse 3, you've been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. So I'm going to abide in your tabernacle forever. That goes with Psalm 27. One thing have I desired, Lord, I can dwell in your temple, your tabernacle. All the days of my life. What's in the tabernacle? The presence of God. What's in the presence of God? That veiled section where you've got the, you've got the Ten Commandments. and You've got the mercy seat. You've got the showbread. All of that representing the glory. You've got the presence of God. God can reveal to you whatever it is that you want to see. If you're hungry enough and desirous enough to climb up in the higher places and to wait for God's presence and for him to make himself known. There have been a lot of people in the history of this nation who have been a part of 
moves of God, where they've seen the presence of God. The first great awakening. A lot of lives were changed. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and people were preaching in the New England states. They said Jonathan Edwards would preach those sermons and people would grip those pews, just weep and cry. But the great awakening wasn't about a bunch of people getting saved. It was about people being awakened to their condition in sin. People trembling. Second great awakening, 19th century. A whole lot of people in the 1800s were moved by the, the revivals of Charles Grandison Finney and others. Mr. Finney would travel throughout this nation. He had a man that went before him that would go into towns, and, and they'd set him up there months ahead, and all he did was pray. Can you imagine having a job where all you had to do was go to villages before the evangelists arrived, and your role was to just stay in a room somewhere and just pray? And then every now and then meet with local pastors. But Mr. Finney would come and he would hold those long, those long meetings. And, and night after night he'd preach. And, and he's the one that really pioneered the idea of an altar call. And he would tell people to get up and come down and make themselves right with God. Fall on their face and call out to God. Finney always said you could have revival wherever the presence of God was stirred up. The people saw the reality of it. The Welsh revival. Over in Great Britain. They said that Welsh revival broke out in those little country hills and those churches. They said the move of God was so great there that the grown men who had trained their horses to, to respond to foul language said they could no longer even control them beasts because they couldn't speak those words anymore. They said sometimes Evan Roberts would come in there and wouldn't even talk. Sometimes they'd just start praying at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night in the prayer meeting would go right on to 4 o'clock in the morning. The presence of God was so real that without any advertisement in the newspaper, people would walk for hours and hours roaming over the hills in the Great Plains just to come to a little small tabernacle out in that area. Yeah. The revival of New Hebrides, the same way. little church out in the country. Not a house in the vicinity. But God showed up and people just started walking from everywhere to be part of the meeting. The Azusa Street Revival. Over 110 years ago, out in California, people gathering in an old chicken barn. Multitudes of people coming. Spirit of God falling on people. Folks getting the baptism. Most of the leaders of every full gospel denomination in America, somehow made their way to Azusa from 1907 to about 1910, 1911. One by one, without a whole lot of people laying hands on them, the power of God was revealed. People's lives were changed. People were made whole. You talk about a nation that's seen the glory of God and the presence of God. John Alexander Dowie, man created his own town in Illinois called Zion. How many people build their own town and, and as long as he was alive, <clears throat> there was never a saloon or a liquor store in it. I don't even know if there's a liquor store in the place now. John Alexander Dowie came all the way from out west, and they said he had one of the greatest healing ministries ever. Because you could walk into that church that he pastored, and they said all up along that wall were nothing but crutches, makeshift wheelchairs. People that lived in that community were also members of that church and people that had been healed. Well, let's not forget that some 70 years ago, 
More than a hundred or so people traveled across this nation with tents preaching the gospel. Sometimes I pull out those old magazines and I read the names of people that were, that were in meetings, and writing in, testifying about being healed from little towns here in Nebraska, little towns in Kansas. Because somebody like A.A. A. Allen or Dale Hanson or Gail Jackson or somebody put a tent up that seated 2,000 people and very often without any help from the local church, just went in there with their, their evangelistic team, started knocking on doors, inviting people out, and began to preach the word of God and pray for the sick and miracles, signs and wonders, deaf ears, unstopped, lives changed. These are people who prayed a very simple prayer, and that was, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, you are going to have to be here on this rock if you ever want to see that. You're not going to find it. Somewhere else. That is to say, when a man or woman begins to cry out for God, more of God, and wants to surrender more of themselves to God, you're going to find that they're going to have to live a more constricted and constrained life. The more of God, the more of yourself you give to God, the more of God he'll give to you. But the more of yourself you give to God, you can expect God's power, God's glory, God's love, God's grace to constrain you more and more like a man or woman standing on a rock and they can see things other people cannot see. They have seen things that other people have not seen. Lukewarm Christians don't chase after stuff like this. They don't say, God, lead me to a higher place. Lukewarm Christians are quite happy with just being able to say, I went to church, but to be hungry for God, passionate about God. Sometime it'll get you up in the middle of the night, you'll sit there in that chair and you just read this book and say, God, I want to know you like I've never known you before. Sometimes it'll get you up and you'll walk around the house and you just pray in tongues. You just pray in English. You say, God, I want my life to be close to you. I want to know you in a greater way. Come on, let's stand tonight. Let's stand. To know God, to be known by God, to make him known in the earth. It's an important thing. Father, I don't know what you see when you look down here upon your people. I do know there are some folks here that love you. We wouldn't be out here if we didn't. But Father, we do want to give more of ourselves to you than we've ever given before. We want to surrender more of ourselves to you than we've ever surrendered before. And Father, we want to see things that we've never seen before. God, show us your glory here in Hebrew. Show us your majesty. Show us your power, your love in a, in a wonderful way. Pour out your great grace. Let your favor be upon us. Allow us to see aspects of you we've never seen before. Father, we just want to take a few moments just to offer to you sacrifices of praise. Let's just begin to worship God. Father, we love you. We honor you tonight, Lord. Father, you're worthy of the praise. There's nobody like you. Thank you for your anointing. Thank you for the touch. Thank you for the Holy Ghost. Oh, God. oh Jesus, we love you. Oh, God, we honor you and we worship you and we praise you. We know the reality of the move of God. We know the reality of your presence. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. 
Your presence brings refreshment, oh God. Your presence brings happiness and peace. We bless you, Lord, and honor you and worship you. Oh God, Jesus, mighty name, oh God. Jesus, mighty name, oh God.